0: We are Encountering Silence.
1: Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you.
2: Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world.
0: Amy Frickholm is an American writer whose five books of nonfiction have covered the territory of American religion from apocalypticists to saints. She is an award-winning writer and senior editor for the magazine The Christian Century, appears frequently on television and radio programs as an expert in American religion, and has lectured widely on subjects like the rapture, purity culture, and lost female figures in Christianity. She has a Ph.D. in literature from Duke University. Amy Frickholm, welcome to Encountering
3: Silence. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Our pleasure. We're excited to have this conversation. Uh, And to get us going, I just thought we'll start with the question we usually ask our guests. You know, our podcast is about exploring all the different nuances of silence. So I'm kind of curious, what is your relationship with silence? Is there a memory or uh, some kind of starting point for silence? Why does silence interest you?
3: I think I remember my first encounter with silence when I was about eight years old. And when, with my encounter with silence as presence is what I mean. Like that, that moment when I recognized that there was something very rich and very deep and very meaningful for me. I was in church. I was in my, my dad's Presbyterian church when that happened. And I, I think it was during Holy Week. Um, And I don't have very many more um, memories to put around that. It was just a a moment, a a time, when I recognized silence and presence as something that was very compelling to me. I didn't have any of those words at the time, obviously, but uh, now I do, and I recognize that as the starting point of a long process of learning about silence. I think the second one I would point to is that my dad, who was a Presbyterian minister, at the time, uh, introduced me actually to silent prayer as a teenager. I was pretty early in my teens. My dad had a very stressful job, and he was trying to reckon with that. He was really struggling in all kinds of ways with the stress and difficulty of his job, and he had found centering prayer. And for whatever reason, he sat me down in his office. And I remember sitting on the floor, and he taught me these basic prayer. Probably as a pretty stressed out teenager, and I was probably acting out in all kinds of ways. I don't remember that part. I just remember the part about sitting on the floor and learning this breathing and prayer practice that I honestly have used since that moment through times when I didn't have anything I recognized as faith at all, and through times when I did have something that I recognized as faith. It just became a part of my of my existence and remained that way.
0: Wonderful. Amy,
1: you've written at least two of your five books have been about figures in the history of Christianity that themselves seem to have a significant relationship with silence. I'm referring to, of course, your, your contemplative biography of Julian of Norwich, and then your most recent book, Wild Woman, uh, A Footnote, The Desert, and My Quest for an Elusive Saint. Uh, I'm curious how silence may have been part of your process of learning about these amazing women from the history of Christianity and your decision to tell their story and your process of telling their story.
3: I would start with Julian. I remember a moment when I really recognized, so there, when you're talking about Julian of Norwich, you know, the theory is that she lived either in a small house near um, the church of St. Julian's in Norwich, or she lived attached to the church. And it's not really known either which one it was, but a lot of the literature around anchorites and this idea of going into the church were kind of horror stories where, you know, like these women go and they live in these dark, horrible, stinky little cells and they never come out and they're dead to the world. And there's, there's kind of this death mythology around that. And I remember encountering Julian and this feeling of like, when that door closed behind her, the enormous amount of relief she might've felt. That enormous amount of, oh, finally silence. And I recognized that, I knew that. And I thought about Emily Dickinson when her, when she took her niece up to the attic where she wrote and she said to her niece, something like, you know, this is paradise. So I recognized that in my own life, my own work. And so I really felt that, that identification with Julian that, I mean, part of this going into the Anchorage, whatever that looked like for her, was an, a, a love for and a need for both silence and solitude that I actually have and know something about and want to explore in my own life. So that was definitely a part of my willingness or my interest in exploring what Julian's life might have been like, because I wanted I wanted to know more about that, and I wanted to see if I could find that anywhere in her work. Uh, I didn't understand the process of going into the anchorage. I didn't know why a person would do that. I didn't know how to to um, argue against kind of some of the horror stories that I had heard about that. But I just had an in- intuition that wasn't right. Um, with Mary of Egypt, I, I mean, she just called my name, and so. I didn't really have a sense. I certainly wasn't using or thinking about silence when I, when I tried to enter into her story, I was actually desperately trying to find her voice. I was trying to figure out how can this person speak to me and, and why is she, why is she speaking to me? And then, and then searching through the silence of the tradition uh, that, that gives her a voice, but, but it isn't hers. And so there were all these layers that I was trying to fight my way through to find how how Mary might speak to me. Um, there was sort of a ton of silence in my practice, and and one piece that I wanted to pull out for you all that was kind of fun was I decided that in order to find Mary of Egypt, I had to walk the path of Mary of Egypt. I had to do what you know a lot of people said couldn't be done. Follow in the footsteps of Mary of Egypt. So I started in Egypt, and I mapped out this trail, and then I thought to myself, you know how How is this going to be different than going as a tourist to Egypt? How am I not going to just fall into the trap of you know I saw that check, saw that check and so I decided that the that the way I was going to do that was by combining finding Mary places, places that I could associate with Mary, places where the text that we have, which is a seventh century document written by Saint Sophronius suggested that Mary might have been, and I was going to take those places, put myself in those places, and then add silence. So I, and I I call that beholding, as opposed to seeing, so I went to these places, for example, there's a, a place in Egypt, where when Mary was a prostitute in Alexandria, where you can you can sort of see what it would be like to be a prostitute in Alexandria. You can sort of see, okay, here are the sorts of doorways where people lived and here's the kind of trade neighborhood where um, lots of things might've been going on, including prostitution. And since the text says that she lived in doorways, I was like, okay, I'm gonna go find myself a doorway. So I went and found a doorway. And then I just stayed there in silence for some period of time. Um, I didn't have like a time or anything, but I just, I just sat in silence in those places. And so that's how I integrated silence into the practice of Mary of Egypt. And then of course, as I followed on her journey and she went deeper and deeper into the desert, there was no need to find silence. You know, Silence was everywhere, found me. Um, and so that's how, one of the ways that silence became integrated into my practice uh, in in search of Mary of Egypt. A second way was that I I have an icon that someone made for me of Mary of Egypt and for about a year before I went on this trek I would just sit down with my icon every day and and just sit in silence with the icon of Mary of Egypt and um and just spend time there.
0: This this is so wonderful. I am so glad Carl asked this question and your response is just ah uh... Makes my my heart sing because I felt like you didn't say it in the book. You didn't say, "Oh, I'm sitting here in silence." But I was like, she had to have, because like when you say I'm on page forty eight, you you make that distinction between tourists who glance and pilgrims behold. And um, you know, we in the past have talked about beholding a lot. Um, one of the uh, authors, one of my kind of like silence heroes, I call them. Uh, is the modern anchorite, uh, Maggie Ross, who writes, uh, and she's um, written a bunch of books. And I was in touch with her when I was doing my doctoral work and and we were exchanging stuff about, and there was this idea of beholding. So the word beholding, like just jumped off the page. And I thought, she is clearly doing silent stuff here. And she's not saying it in the text, but she has to be. Well, I think what I appreciate this beholding versus glance, and then Also, this what you said about Julian, I want to connect. It feels like, to me, what I love about your work, and is this what you're doing? Uh, This is what I want to ask. It seems to me that you are offering a wonderful corrective because the language often talked about like anchorites, like she's dying, they're burying her, it's death. And you just told me it might have been glorious or like Emily Dickinson, this is paradise. Or Mary of Egypt oh, this horrible embodied prostitute shaming her. And oh, and the language used around shame and guilt and all this kind of purity nonsense. And you just were going underneath that going, I'm not so sure I tr- That's like an untrustworthy narrator. I don't like that. That's not what her voice is actually. And so maybe it isn't, I'm dying in this anchorite. And maybe it isn't, Oh shame or oh guilt. Maybe there's something else. Is is that really how you're approaching all of these? Like maybe the narrators we had that that's passing on the tradition to us, we just maybe we should push back a little bit.
3: That that is that does seem to be my method. You know, that does seem to be how I work. But I think it's more it's also a search, you know, for for these voices or for these realities. So I'm yeah. trying to to dig past, I mean Sophronius, he's all we have. And my first interactions with Sophronius, I I did feel this need. Well first the first thing I felt was desire. I just I was like this has something for me and I need to figure out what that something is. And then from desire I moved on to a wrestling relationship with Sophronius. I think one version of this book I wrote was all letters to Sophronius. Um, <laughs> but but that ended up not being finally where, where I wanted to go. But Zephronius was the only guy I could talk to, you know? So that's why I think I initially invested in his voice. But what I really wanted to do was get past that voice into some kind of silence. But if you think about it, Julian also was very silent about her own life. I mean, even, even though she actually wrote a book and so we have access to her voice in that way, she wrote two books, the same book twice. Um, we don't have access to her life. She was very silent about her own, her own situation. And so those are some of the things that I looked for as I was searching for Mary of Egypt is, is how do we get past Sophronius's voice or assumptions? And and by the end of the day, I actually came to have a great deal of affection for Sophronius. And I do think that he is, he's poking his own society and maybe just the right ways. But at the, at the time I couldn't, you know, I couldn't make sense of that.
2: Amy some of the words that keep I keep hearing in this conversation are layers and connections and even hearing the ways in which you utilize you know the psychological layers and connections of quite literally placing yourself in a doorway and these layers of literary works that you're bringing in and poets you know Emily Dickinson you mentioned and I'm wondering how how do the layers meet and or connect for you um, in the writing process. And you mentioned two aspects of silence practices, um, that were part of the book. And I'm wondering if silence is a part of the writing process as well, perhaps as the meeting place of when, when those things eventually merge for you and come up and come out.
3: I mean, silence is a big part of my writing process. And I do, I do think of myself as a contemplative writer and as someone who integrates silence into, into practices of writing. Mary of Egypt. when i when I when I started with that document and started with Sophronius, the first thing I did was just very slowly and gradually unpack that document and and sort of even line by line sit with what was on the page. And I think that is where a lot of silence for me. Um, is a helpful tool because I don't immediately assume that I know what's going on in this document or immediately understand how all these connections or all these layers are being made. So that's a really important part of the process is just sitting with the document and saying, what what's being spoken here? And, and trying to really listen. And when I say that, I really mean that pretty literally, just like, I mean, doorway pretty literally, right? So just like listening to what the, the document is saying and letting it speak. And then And then I kind of start a process of translation where I say, well, what if it means this or what if it means that, or how, how can we understand these different things? And then there's, and then that continues the process of silence and of listening because I still don't have it right. So I have to continue listening through. And I think that, that pretty well describes my writing process as well. I think of it as a, as a listening through. And then of course, as, as different sources come in and different Different aspects of, of the work present themselves in that process, then those get layered in. Then, of course, you have to listen to what you wrote, listen to what you said, and so on. And it just keeps going in that way.
0: Do you, following up on this layer question, because I love that Cassidy asked that the book is like multiple genres. It, to me, I felt like I was reading part Indiana Jones meets, you know, I, I don't know. Like, it was crazy. It was a travel adventure. I really, you kept me hanging. I was actually like, where does this end? Does she find something? Like, because you kept saying, like, I'm going to go off and find nothing. And then all of a sudden I'd read the chapter and you'd be like, wait, surprise, I actually found something. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> it, you know, and I kept reading and I thought, oh my God. And then there were so many places, as, as Cassidy just said, like this nuance and layers, like the word doorway, I mean, just the word doorway, it has like metaphor and symbolism. And then, as you said, literal doorways, you went to a literal doorway and you sat there and you just was in a doorway. So I felt like I could almost do Lexio Divino with this book. Like I could just at first do some kind of like, what's it talking about on the surface? But then I could actually sit and go, did she has multiple layers here this paragraph means like four different things to me. And I actually saw that. I felt like, wow, she spent a long time crafting this book. I I was so kind of intimidated. Like, I'm not sure I ever want to write a book again. Uh, (laughs) Because I I don't think I write like that, that deep. And uh, Was that intentional? Like, is this multiple, multiple, multiple drafts? Because that's how this read.
3: Well, it was definitely multiple. I mean, I started writing this book in you know, maybe 2011 and threw away a couple of drafts because I couldn't figure out how to connect this woman's life to our own life. I I just couldn't figure out. I knew it called to me. I knew there was something in it for me. I knew I wanted to explore it. But every time I tried to say something, it just it just felt wrong. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. So I think that's how the layering process began was by these, I mean, let's just call them failed, failed attempts. These, these, uh, these uh, explorations into the territory of Mary of Egypt, and then, and then watching them fall apart. Okay, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. And so finally, I had this idea of, well, I'm going to go walk this, I'm going to walk it as if Mary of Egypt were a real person. I'm going to walk it as if her life mattered. I'm going to walk it as if she has something to say to me. And so by the time I went on that walk, I had read, you know, everything I could find on Mary of Egypt. And then I'd also really been inspired by Clarissa Pinkola Estes's work on the wild woman archetype so I understood at some level that Mary of Egypt was calling to me as a wild woman archetype that there was something in that that I needed and there was too much resonance there for me to ignore that so by the time I actually showed up in Egypt and put my feet on the ground and was like okay lead me wherever this goes I had done a lot of that previous work and I'd rejected a lot of versions of Mary of Egypt and I'd uh rejected a lot of versions of myself in relation to Mary of Egypt and then together we sort of were I was able to begin that process of as if that walk through the imagination and so I think that when you you encounter something like for example the doorway by that point I had worked through a lot of, of failed versions of of the of the book and I and I was deeply curious about, the, both the metaphors and the the practicalities of a Mary of Egypt as a prostitute in, in uh, Egypt. Amy,
2: I have kind of a two-part question. And okay, so the first part is this. You strike me as a very humble person and someone who wouldn't write a book that didn't need to be written. And so I'm wondering, I feel like there, there might be some kind of a process in which someone convinced you that this needs to be written, or you got to a place where you convinced yourself. Because I think that a lot of us think, oh, that story's been told, or that angle, or that that memoir angle, or that journey piece has been done. So I'm wondering, and you know, and I feel that this is a book that needed to be written, certainly, and I'm so glad you did. And I'm wondering, first of all, what that process was like in either convincing yourself or being convinced um, that this needed to exist? And then secondly, what the hardest part was about writing this? And maybe that's the same same answer.
3: So I remember the very first time that I thought about writing about Mary of Egypt and it was in um, 2010, I think. And my Julian book, the book about Julian and Julian's life had just come out. And I really had, that had been such a magical and fascinating process to try to put together Julian's writings with the historiography of uh, you know 14th century Norwich and I and I tried to put those things together and it had been such an exciting journey to take that text and put it together with historiography and and find a version of Mary, or sorry, find a version of Julian that really was enlivening. And I thought enlivened the text and, and really pointed people back to the text. Go back to the text, read the text, but if you read my book, maybe the text comes alive for you in new ways. So I was very excited about that. And then um, the press approached me about maybe continuing that journey with other figures, and they presented me with a list. And at that time, I had encountered Mary of Egypt briefly, And I knew that she could be a figure like that for me, that she had my name written on her somehow, or I had her name written on me or something like that. And so I began thinking about it as a book at that point. And and yet nothing really came of it. And again, I started this exploration. I started collecting resources. I, I started to learn Greek so that I could read the Sophronius text. Obviously I had something in mind, right? But every time I, I moved toward it, it just seemed like it fell apart in front of me. It just seemed like no, no, no. I encountered way more no's than yeses. And, um, you know, I I did every, I applied for grants. I thought, oh, well, maybe it's a part of this bigger project. And I, I mean, I did all kinds of things. And it just seemed like everywhere I looked, there was a no. And I was I guess, willing to accept that there was a no here, because like you said, I did have that strong feeling of if this doesn't need to be written, then I don't need it to be in the world. I don't, I don't have any need for, uh, to put this book together, you know, with my other books. I just felt like if it doesn't have its own energy, then, then I don't, I don't need it. But then the idea of traveling and following in the footsteps of Mary of Egypt, then that enlivened the process. And so I thought, well, I've got to do that anyway, just because it'll be super fun. And and so at that point, I just decided, but what if we made a map? I mean, this what if, this whole process of what if drove the book forward, it just at every point, like, well, okay, what if she actually lived? What if we try to take this manuscript and turn it into a map? What if I actually tried to put my feet down on the ground in these different places and so on? So I was driven forward by that, what if? And every time I I would land on that, it would just be so exciting that I was, okay, well, I've got to try that. I mean, we'll see what happens. And then as readers of the book will know, I mean, there were many times even on the walking trail where I thought, like Kevin said, like, I'm just not gonna end up with anything here. There's no story to be told. And then something would happen, you know, something would unfold, something would suggest itself to me or a sign would appear or, I you know, this whole process of walking as if there were signs in the world that could point your direction became really profound. And uh, probably my biggest takeaway is that this was an experiment in ask and you shall receive, seek and you will find. And I ended up taking that pretty literally and it ended up unfolding in some pretty amazing ways. And so then it was just a process of, okay, this is, a, there, there is something here. Even though I didn't even then fully understand it or couldn't fully uh, express it. And that became the exciting process of writing because then it's like, okay, well, what did I find? What did unfold? And sometimes I still don't know.
2: I'm struck real quickly here about The refrain you just mentioned of what if and the refrain in the book of so what and so I just want to kind of name that that rhythm that you brought us into in the process and brought it bring us into in the book as well
3: yeah that's so what question I still it still gives me chills like I still get really nervous when someone asks me well so what you know because I because it feels too big to answer and I also feel like it's almost um what's the word? There's almost a sort of of tyranny in me telling you what the so what of the book is. I don't know. You find your own so what, right? But that answer doesn't usually suffice when you're trying to tell other people what the meaning of a project is. It, but it's usually enough for me. So I be, I've found myself very curious about other people's um, wild stories, other people's adventures in I don't know, other people's adventures in what if. And I think that this book, I just want it to contribute. I just want it to feed that energy in other people.
0: Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. So you've brought it up a couple of times and the, the wild woman archetype. I love where the wolves, the women who run with wolves is one of my favorite books of all time. Uh so I I totally I get that. And so I guess you've raised it. And I I kind of want to ask the question then, is it, what do we what do we mean by wild woman? I guess maybe my so what question here toward the title or what is what is wild woman? What what do we mean here? When we mean by the word wild. I let you know this is the kind of area i hang around in i love this and so i need to talk to somebody else who's struggling with this question too
3: so i think the first layer for me would be the actual wild so i really think that there's an important part about mary actually going into the wilderness and living there and encountering the elements and dwelling in that space and becoming intimate with it and allowing it to challenge her, and allowing it to transform her. So the very literal wilderness is an important part of this, and I think we can quickly overlook it because we'll quickly go, we'll quickly metaphorize it and turn it into something else. But these spaces in in Jordan that, that Mary of Egypt may have lived in, they're quite extraordinary, and and they're and they're they're wild. I mean, even local people, when we were hiking through Wadi Hasa there were local people hiking up the wadi and we were hiking down it and they had never been very far up the 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 wadi even though they live right at the, the base of it so so these faces are are uninhabited and they're they're really remarkable and they speak they they tell stories and they have a lot to to say so i feel like the first element of of the wild and wild woman is the actual wilderness and Um, and the time that we might spend there in learning about ourselves, learning about the world. And another piece of that is that my guide through the Wadi Hasa takes children who have been traumatized by war, especially the Syrian war, into the wilderness for an experience of healing. And what he told us was that he basically said, well, I just give them a little equipment and a little instruction, and then I just let nature do the rest of the work. So he felt that the, those spaces were, were truly healing and truly helpful as children who'd been traumatized by war were attempting to to put the pieces of their lives back together. And I think Mary of Egypt was a, a traumatized person who found in the wilderness healing. So I think that that's an important piece. Um, and then I also think there's this part of ourselves and I don't know how you you talk about it, but it's a part that longs for a freer space, a bigger space, a a, a part that longs to be released from some of the certainties and expectations of our normal and ordinary lives. And I feel like the wild woman archetype is that part of us that calls us forward and calls us outward into a bigger world. And Mary of Egypt is such an interesting figure because one way to look at her life is that everywhere, she that that every setting she she entered became too small for her so she continually moved into bigger and bigger horizons and until you know there was only the horizon of the enormous sky and then the horizon of death but she moved into these spaces and each one she grew so big that she couldn't the space couldn't contain her and i feel like that's also the wild the wild woman archetype that. This way of becoming vaster than the space that we're in.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just want to add your your own words here. I mean, this is just one of the quotes that I love from the book. It's exactly this area where you where you say on page one fifty eight, you're talking about Mary of Egypt, and you say, "And even so, she was every bit as ephemeral and every bit as wild as I had imagined. A dragonfly, a woman who had come." to peace with the wind and the sand and the sun, a person who had become light.
1: What's fascinating for me listening to this is to compare your story of, of Mary's trajectory, of her kind of unfolding vastness with Julian's trajectory of moving into enclosure. And like you said, while we we don't know for sure where she is if you go to Norwich today, they have reconstructed what they think may have been her cell. And it's tiny. It's smaller than the office I'm sitting in right now. With the idea that she may have lived there for 20 or 30 years. And so here's this person who moves into this incredibly constricted space. But, um, you know, when we were talking about her earlier, what came to my mind was Virginia Woolf in a room of one's own. And this idea that in that, you know, uh, Emily's paradise, in that constricted space, she she is the first woman to write a book in the English language. So yes, I love that, just, and I
3: think that that's also like the 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 two sides of pilgrimage, right? The in the interior pilgrimage where you go inside and you find what Julian calls a hayward that that open space inside of yourself. And then there's also this outer movement, this movement out into the world, where you also encounter the interior. So, so, and Julian is great on that, right, where she always is talking about how we are enclosed in God, and God is enclosed in us. And so she's often making those moves of this outward gesture where everything is big, bigger than we can possibly imagine. And then everything is contained and small and constricted, smaller than we can possibly imagine. And it, it, it makes me think of physics, you know, of, of the atom containing all that there is or whatever. I'm not very good on physics, but you kind of get the idea.
2: So speaking of these, these places and spaces of silence um, and this journey you went on for Wild Woman in particular, were there any places in particular, you know, you mentioned bringing silence to all the places, but were there, were there any places where that silence was kind of already there, a place that might have embodied silence and it struck you, or maybe a, maybe a place where, yeah, you just recognized that it, maybe it wasn't as difficult to be there in the silence?
3: Well, one place that definitely stays with me as a place of unbelievable silence is the Cave of St. Anthony. So this wasn't exactly on Mary's path. So, it, and it's a little complicated to get at why I even went to the cave of Saint Anthony in search of Saint Mary, because it's way off. The, it's way off the track. But there are ways in which the story of Saint Anthony, who was the first Christian monk, and then the story of Mary of Egypt, are are deeply related. And so when I went to the monastery of Saint Anthony in search of that relation, uh, there, in his cave, there is this incredible incredible sense of silence which is a silence that's been maintained by humans for 1700 years and there's this real sense that it accumulates over time that silence is a kind of substance that if you and, and i've and i've i've read um, Henry Nowen talking about this, about how he prays more easily in spaces where other people have prayed, as if prayer was a sort of substance that accumulates. And I think that this was true in the cave of St. Anthony, but it wasn't, I wouldn't have named it prayer as much as silence. And they were both, they were both present, but that silence was so rich and so deep that I tend to go there in my imagination, like on nights when I can't sleep, I'll just go back there and I'll just put myself as best I can into the cave of St. Anthony and I'll just let that silence just sink in and just absorb into my skin like it was a, you know, like like water or something. Uh, so that was definitely a place of deep, deep silence. And then the other place that, you know, I go to th- to think about Mary of Egypt is the wilderness in Jordan and this amazing place that called the Wadi Hasa, which was, is the, it's in the Bible, it's the border between the kingdom of Edom and the kingdom of Moab. But it's, it's a, it's a really amazing place where this river runs down it all year long. And, and really, when you hike it, you just hike through the river, you just put your feet in the river and you just walk. And often when we were hiking, we would just fall into silence, just really naturally, you know, for hours. Um, and that the wadi and that silence and the walking kind of all merged together to help me, to wake me up to what Mary of Egypt's life might have meant.
0: The, the question I wanted to ask was the question on, on page 122, you start talking about the path of the wild. And then that leads into, on page 124, you say that Mary is an icon of repentance and self-rejection. Which is fascinating because then you make sure that you make it clear for us the reader that what you mean by self-rejection is not some kind of self-loathing. Like you go on onto page one twenty-five, and because that's easily where we could go, we can go to shame, guilt, and all sorts of stuff and beat ourselves up. And you're like, nope, that's not what we're talking about here. And and you keep talking about this path of kind of letting go, and that you even cite Sarah Maitland, where in from her book of silence, where God wills our freedom. But won't bully us. So there's this sense that f- for for Mary of Egypt, she finds the one that will not abuse her, use her, beat her up, tell her what to do. You know, will be present and really just being open and present to. Did you bring that? I, I I'm kind of curious. Did you discover more of that when you were studying Mary of Egypt? Was that a an assumption you brought to the text and to your things beforehand Uh, is maybe it's a little bit of both, but I just thought that was so important. And I was so glad you called that out because I just, there's so much bad canonic literature out there. That's like, we're supposed to beat ourselves up and you won't let the reader go there, which I love.
3: I think that is a really important part of my pursuit of Mary of Egypt, because my initial reaction to her when I very first encountered her story was this both, terror that this woman had gone into the desert and given up everything because of shame because of and and there's this kind of horrible moment in that text where we understand that she was tortured by demons for exactly 17 years which was exactly the period of time that she spent as a prostitute and so there was this sense of like an eye for an eye or or this uh you know tit for tat like for every moment that you sinned you had to suffer And I, so I was, I was horrified that, that perhaps I was walking into a path of self-loathing that I was, I was actually choosing Mary of Egypt as a, as an icon, because I was trying to interpret my own self-loathing in a particular kind of way. And then I had this other desire to just wrap Mary of Egypt up in a blanket and take her to my house and feed her and and take care of her. And if there was any self-loathing in that, then I wanted to erase it. So I had these two, I had this terror that I might be following in a path of self-loathing. And then I had this desire to to comfort and, and, and fix and heal and do all of those things. And so it was that tension between those two things. And then the constant refrain, you know, in the tradition out of which Mary Beach becomes that she was an icon of repentance. And I didn't want to reject that out of hand because I don't, I am not, I don't see myself anyway as a, as a tradition rejecter. I'm curious about the tradition. I, I want to explore it. I, I want to understand it. I feel like it's this incredible, rich, vast uh, set of stories that we can enter again and again as different people and, and as at different moments in our lives and, and rediscover and find. And so I had no interest. Interest in in dismissing the tradition of the icon of repentance, and I have a friend who's read who read Wild Woman and is rather upset with me. She doesn't think that I gave Father Fillaret a hard enough time in the text. She so he's the monk who tells me about the tradition of, of the the of Mary as an icon of repentance, and she doesn't think I'm I'm strong enough against him. And I take that critique um, because I I do think that in some ways this book is written against that tradition of of self-rejection as self-loathing. But at the same time, I think that it's interesting that so many people have been compelled by Mary's story. She is one of the most popular saints in Russia. And I don't think it because everyone is eager to beat themselves up about the shameful and horrible and sinful things they've done in their lives. I think they sense something in her. They sense some kind of transformation that they long for, and I know that I sensed it as well, and that I long for transformation. And so following in her footsteps taught me that, that really her desire, this thing that that in some ways is rejected by the tradition, right, this idea that she was lustful and she just wanted to have sex with as many people as possible. And that kind of, that, that lust that's in her, there was a seed of desire in there and that seed of desire was transformative. Um, and so, she desired everybody until she only desired god and so i don't feel like it's i don't feel like it's a rejection of that human desire i feel like it's a transformation of it and a fulfillment of it
1: and that takes us to the greek meaning of the word repentance which is metanoia which basically means like beyond consciousness or moving into a higher consciousness you know the noose, the noia, is the the chalice of 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 awareness to to enter, and there's there's that moving into vaster and vaster spaces. Mm-hmm. So it's not about repudiation. That's very much a kind of a modern overlay. It's uh, you know I think you're right. right. I think you're you're going back to a deeper understanding.
3: And isn't that the uh, weren't those the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark? I'm not sure I have this exactly right. And look it up before we talked, but. That the first thing Jesus says is, "Transform yourselves." He doesn't. And when then we've always we've always interpreted that as repent, right? Repudiate. But uh-huh. but the first words of Jesus are, "Transform yourselves." You can do this. You've got this. And he spoke those words, you know, right in the spot of Mary of Egypt, where she, you know, hundreds of years later, a few hundred years later, uh, also followed that path of transformation.
0: It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Can I geek out for a second with you because I, I, this is very niche um, and I don't know if you have an answer to this uh, and it's okay if you don't, but I have to ask. So I, I do a lot of work academically. At, when I teach at university, I do comparative stuff and I do a lot of Christian dialogue with other tr- religious traditions, a lot of interreligious interlearning, inter et cetera. And I specifically do stuff with Buddhism, trad- Buddhist tradition, a lot of Christian Buddhist stuff, a lot of silence and meditation and all that. And in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there is this big push of spending time in caves, off alone, quiet, in desert settings, and mountains, et cetera, et cetera. And the most enlightened masters, the ones who spend all the time alone, away in these solitary kind of things, and they meditate and they do their work, very similar to Anthony of the Desert and Mary of Egypt and the rest of them, at the end of their life, it's very common— That the master, when they die, turn into light. It's called the rainbow body. Mm -hmm. And that language that you put on one page, 158, and she turned into light. And I was just like, now, I mean, I know the tradition itself says there was a body and lion licked their feet and stuff like that. But that idea of St. Anthony the wild animals would come up. This is the silence transforms them. The wilderness transforms them. They become these people. They become like Adam and Eve in the garden. They can hang out with the animals. Everybody, you know, wild animals treat them like domesticated people, you know, and they hang out. And so Mary, again, like St. Anthony uh, of the desert there, has lions come up and licking her feet and digging a hole to bury her and all this stuff. It just feels like, there's some kind of bodily transformation and light and desert. And did you bump into any of that kind of language or like that there were something else that happened to her transformation-wise?
3: Well, I think the clue or the hint in the text is one that I struggled with because I didn't really know what to do with the magical elements in the text. So there are these aspects, for example, that Mary rose up into the air when she prayed, right? So she, she, she became... Uh, light in that sense, right? She rose into the air, or that she walked on water. What were some of the other ones? I, and then I, some of these, some of the images of the of the wild animals, for example, and that and that she didn't encounter a single wild animal while she was in the desert. Right. And I didn't always know what to do with this language. I didn't want to dismiss it out of hand, but here I was walking as if this story were true, and so I wondered about that. And when I was in the wilderness in Jordan, what came to me about that was that she really became very intimate with the landscape. She really became a part of it. The elements that that were her daily life were were really a part of her and she became intimate with them in a way that it's really hard for me to imagine. And so I think that when the text talks about things like her rising into the air or walking on the water, what I think that it's referring to is a relationship with the natural world, a relationship with the environment and the elements that's quite different than anything that we can really imagine from, from those locations that we're in now. But it's something like those enlightenment masters. It's something like that transformation of the self. And in the desert tradition, you get a lot of this, right? Like that, that the cells of the bodies of the desert masters, the desert mothers and fathers, that they changed as they lived in the desert. You all—you get a, some, some remnant of this when you talk about communion and how as in the Christian tradition, especially early on, you had this idea that by taking communion, the cells of your body changed. That this this physical spiritual dichotomy that we've become so much so accustomed to, really didn't apply, or or it was interpreted very differently. And and so I think for Mary of Egypt, that's how I came to understand those aspects of the text. That there was an understanding of the physical and spiritual in Mary of Egypt's world, and then in her own life, that were very different than the ones that um, that I'm work- the categories I'm working with.
2: So Amy, one of the things we love to ask our guests is the question, do you have a silence hero? And while the answer might be slightly obvious in this conversation, I'm wondering if you, if you do go the obvious route, maybe if there's an additional one, we'd love to hear that as well.
3: Well, you know, right now my silence hero is really Thomas Keating. Because I feel like he's doing a lot of instructing of me right now in terms of my own silence and how to hold it better and more, more carefully. For example, one thing I recently read in Thomas Keating was about having the, having your inner, so your silence is a time or a space where you get protected from your own inner commentary, as well as from the commentary of the world. And so I've really been, that's really been very meaningful to me lately as I actually, when I actually sit in silence to, to remember that, that I can, I have the opportunity to use that time to, to put a little boundary around my own constant commentary, as well as all of the worldly things that are, that are clamoring for my attention. And so that's, so that's been important. So he's been an important figure for me recently in terms of teaching me more and more about how to be in silence, how to make that time richer and more meaningful and, and to just increase the practice or, uh, deepen the practice. So I would say right now, Thomas Keating's my guy.
2: I I love the connection of that to your father teaching you centering prayer. Yeah. Yeah,
3: exactly. The beginning of our conversation. Yeah. And it never really, it never really ends, you know, the, the practice, never really stops it it always is changing it's so dynamic what i need one instant or how how i might enter silence in one period of time and how i might enter it in another moment in my life they can be so different and not good bad and not always progress regress or regress progress but just different and i think that um ever since i came back from from um, the Middle East and from my journey with Mary of Egypt, I, I walked into a lot of chaos in my life. Um, my, you know, closest friend was dying. My church was in total chaos. I, um, I, I kept trying to be everything for everybody. And, and I walked back right back smack into myself in a way that I hadn't, I'd, I guess I suppose I'd hoped not to. And there I was, and everything had kind of fell apart. And I, I, Decided that I had to deepen my practice of silence. I had to sit down and and make it richer, make it deeper. That was the only way through this time of chaos and that encounter with myself. And, and, you know, thank God Thomas Keating was there to reinstruct, reteach, and help me again to, you know, learn this practice over and over.
1: Thank you, Amy. And another question that we often will ask uh, our conversation partners is if there is a particular poem or other kind of text that for you particularly embodies um, your relationship with silence.
3: I'll go with the first one I thought of. And it's this poem by W.S. Merwin that's called For the Anniversary of My Death. I feel like W. S. Merwin is one of those poets who really does write from a silent place. I feel like there's a lot of silence in his poetry, or at least silence as I understand it. And this poem speaks to that, and always speaks to me. I'm not a very good memorizer of poetry. I I really, for some reason, repetition doesn't doesn't sit well with me, and I, I can't do it very well. And I I've tried to memorize this poem, but I never succeeded. Still, I think it's a poem worth memorizing, and and maybe someday I'll, I'll be able to memorize it, but it's called, For the Anniversary of My Death. Every year, without knowing it, I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me, and the silence will set out, tireless traveler, like the beam of a lightless star. Then I will no longer find myself in life, as in a strange garment, surprised at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men. As today, writing after three days of rain, hearing the wren sing and the falling cease and bowing, not knowing to what.
0: Well, I could go for hours and hours and I know (laughs) I know we can't keep going and going because I but I really do. I mean, you everything you write about, Amy, all your books, um, this conversation, there's like we haven't even scratched the surface. Uh, this is a great, great book. I Thank you for writing it. I really do believe it needed to be in the world. I needed to read it. I I' I've already referred it to a, a number of people and they were all over, they were, yes, oh my God. <laughs> the title <Thanks. laughs> the title was just like it sucked them in so thank you so much from my friends and for myself oh, thank I, you I really
3: appreciate it you know it's it's a, always an interesting process to try to bring a book into the world and try to figure out what it's doing there and like how do you how do you help it yeah <laughs> so i really appreciate you you all having me on to to try that in this context
0: We are Encountering Silence. I'm Kevin Johnson. To learn more about me, please visit KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl
2: McComan. Find out about my work at CarlMcCombin.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. My website is CassidyHall.com.
0: Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on this podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com slash silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters. Our circle of supporters help tremendously in sharing our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.